Psalm 9. Today is the, the sermon I typically preach, a, a sermon on the theme of thanksgiving. And one of the, one of the tasks of every faithful um, Bible preacher is to rescue the understanding of thanksgiving from the weak, watered-down, um, quickly experienced and then forgotten experience of a Thanksgiving holiday. Now, they have some connection, but very little. If you're a believer of, in Jesus today, you've been filled with the Spirit of the Holy Spirit, and uh, you, are, you are actively worshiping and praising the name of God, then one of the things that is a testimony and a, and a seasoning of that worship and praise is not just momentarily, but continual thanksgiving before a holy God for all that he has done for you. And one of the things you will find reflective of that in Scripture is when you read the Psalms, thanksgiving is everywhere as they are a testimony of worship often. And because of that, thanksgiving finds its way often in the Psalms. So, um, you can just about go to any of them. Today we're going to Psalm 9. If you're physically able, I'll, I'll ask you if you would to stand. I want to read the entirety of the psalm to you today. It is a psalm of praise, a psalm of thanksgiving, uh, a psalm of, of David. This is what the Word of God has to say. Psalm 9. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exalt in you. I will sing praise to you and to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence, for they have maintained, for you have maintained my just cause. You have set on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations, you have made the wicked perish, you have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out, the very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble, and those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges, uh, avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk. In the pit that they made, in the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forgot God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall perish. 
forever. Shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. So in the most basic sense, thanksgiving is acknowledgement of a gift or an act of service. We rightly express thanksgiving when we receive gifts, no matter the, the, the quality or the value of a gift. So if somebody were to give you something extremely valuable today, you would say, thank you. That's the right thing to do. And if your child or your grandchild brought you a drawing that you can't even tell what it is, and they give that to you as a gift, what do you say? You say, thank you. And those are appropriate responses to, to both of those gifts. We also rightly express thanksgiving when we receive service. So if somebody does something for you that is tremendously valuable and precious to you, you say thank you. And then we also rightly say thank you even when we receive uh, service that we've purchased or that we've paid for. However, when we say and we use the word thanksgiving in a context of understanding it from a biblical point of view, Thanksgiving is an act of worship and entirely more significant and important than simply acknowledging something that's been given to us or service that's been rendered. When you have a thankful heart that responds to God in worship with thanksgiving, this is more than simply acknowledging the receipt of a gift. Thanksgiving worship flows from a heart of one who recognizes their need. When you, you know you were in need and God has ministered to you in a way that could not have been ministered in any other way. When you recognize the source of your provision, you're not who you are because of who you are. You are who you are because God has provided abundantly for you. And responding with worshipful praise and thanksgiving to the one who has provided. Dear friends, if you, are, if you are walking with the Lord and you're, and you're walking with the Lord is producing right worship in your life, that right worship will include thanksgiving. Somebody say amen. Psalm 9 is a psalm of David. It and Psalm 10 at one time may have been combined into one. But we're going to consider Psalm 9 as a singular psalm today. You can divide it really, it is divided in two major parts. So, Psalm, so verses 1 through 12, David talks about what God has done. And in verse 13 to the end, David talks about what God is going to do. And as you're reading the psalm, it, you may find it difficult to distinguish the two, and we'll talk about why that is later. But, but, but just briefly, when you talk about what God has done in the past, it gives you hope and faith for what God is going to do in the future. And so oftentimes those two dynamics are, 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 are intermingled. There are a lot of things that we could glean from this text. But today I want us to consider three things that we should be thankful for. Two of them flow from the, the division of the psalm and, and one that is just part of the text that just jumps off off the page with me. So here are, the, here are the three. Number one, we ought to be thankful for what God has done. We often say it, but it is absolutely true and worthy of saying again. If God does nothing else for us ever again, just the fact 
for the, the, the death of Jesus on the cross and providing for us salvation, we have enough to be thankful for the rest of eternity. Amen? So we need to be a people who are thankful and often recount the blessings and provisions of what God has done for us. That produces, dear friends, faith and assurance in what God will do. So we ought to be thankful for what God has done, and we ought to be thankful for what God will do. And then lastly, there, there, are, there are two verses out of this psalm that, I mean, when I read it, they, they absolutely capture my heart. And so we we'll, want to end today with the third Thanksgiving, and that is to be thankful for who God is. But let's begin with the, the first half of the psalm, which is being thankful for what God has done. If you're paying attention to the news today, then your heart may likely be a bit troubled. There are some concerning things that are happening in our world today, and, and without getting into the specifics and details, in general, our culture, and then the, therefore, so our, so our culture as represented in entertainment industry, our culture as represented in the academy or academics, and certainly our culture as represented in our politics is growing rapidly more and more secular, and as it grows more secular, more and more bold and open in its rejection of biblical truth. Now, maybe that's always been, but there, there, there is a, 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 a more present sense, a more um, um, contemporary sense that, that that trajectory has sped up to a really an unexpected speed as our culture grows more secular and more openly rejects the gospel. And part of the thing that comes along with that is as our culture rejects the gospel, that's not a benign decision. So the conflict that we are experiencing now, and I think we'll experience more and more rapidly and more and more seriously in the years to come, is the conflict between those who are attempting to live faithfully before the Lord that will find themselves in direct opposition to what the world says is right and good and demands. And you and I and everybody else who follows Jesus are going to have to make some pretty costly decisions in the years to come. Will we obey Jesus or will we capitulate to the demands of the world? David lived in such a world. He and his nation were surrounded by people who hated Israel and wanted nothing more than to destroy Israel. David saw that, that conflict not just in the context of geopolitical conflict. He saw that in terms of spiritual battle. He and his nation were God's people. Their neighbors not only hated them, but hated the God that they served. And so as you read through Psalm 9, you cannot ignore, you cannot miss the fact that he's talking a lot about how God preserved him, preserved him from his enemies and, um, and kept the, 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 the attempts of the enemy to destroy them away. So you're going to hear those themes come up over and over and over again, and particularly in the first half when we talk about how God has provided for us already. One of the things we see out of this passage is that we are thankful for what God has done in part in preserving the testimony of truth. So in verse 1, David says that he will recount the wonderful deeds of God. The thankful praise of David begins with the testimony of how God has moved and provided in his life. This is where our thanksgiving, I think, must begin as well. In verse 3, 4, 5, and 6, David recounts how God has dealt with his enemies. 
And among other things, he says, like in verse 6, that they stumble and perish before God's presence. And in verse, in verse 5, he says, he, God has rebuked the nations. Now, there's more going on here than, 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 than David giving God credit for military victory. Certainly God had done that. But I think what David is saying here is he understood that his enemies were not only fighting him, but they were opposing and fighting God's people and therefore God's will. David saw the conflicts of military battle in his life, not just as far as tanks and, well, he didn't have tanks, but chariots and arrows. He saw them in context of spiritual forces. There are neighbors who wish to destroy the people of God, and God has preserved us for, for out of his faithfulness unto this day. God had not just provided for military victory. God had provided well for the protection of his people and the advancement of his will. Friends, the Hebrew nation was surrounded by enemies that wanted nothing more than to destroy them. But he, the Hebrews in Israel remained not because they had a greater army than their neighbors, but because of the mighty hand of God. Friends, today the church of God is surrounded by enemies that want nothing more than to silence and to destroy us. But that's nothing new. The world around us wants to silence the church, but more importantly, it wants to silence the testimony of the gospel. Listen carefully to what, what the threat is. Oh, you can be a church, just don't preach the gospel. Oh, you can believe in the word of God, just don't live out its truth in your life. Be silenced. Friends, it is good for us like David to look back and recognize that God has preserved the testimony of truth. There are troubling waters ahead of us. There are difficult days ahead of us. But before we give ourselves to fretting about what is to come, let us look behind us and see what God has already done. God has defeated the enemies who attempted to destroy the church. God has purified the church from those who wish to malign the testimony of the church from within. Friends, history is full of moments where the enemies of God declared that they were about to destroy God's people, that they had destroyed God's people, and that the witness of God's truth was going to be no more. You can find articles upon articles where the procrastinators are saying, the church is over, the gospel is dead, and we can move on from God. And yet history is filled with testimonies where God preserved the testimony of his truth. Give thanks for what God has done. God has preserved the testimony of his truth, and God has defeated the enemies of righteousness. Now, I want to be careful here. Not just enemies, but enemies of righteousness. In verses 12, excuse me, verses 7 through 12, David uses two images. In 7 and 8, David, uh, he uses the image of God sitting in judgment as the righteous judge, a courtroom-type image. In 9 through 12, David uses the image of God as a stronghold for those who trust in him. Those two things are intermingled. And that both realities happen at the same time. The world is opposed to God and opposed to his truth and therefore opposed to his people. And friends, until Jesus returns and fully establishes his kingdom, the forces of this world will be on attack against God and therefore will be on attack against God's people. So in the present, 
Those who trust in God run to him for protection. And in the present, those who oppose him are confronted by his judgment. Those two things are happening simultaneously. Those who trust in God run to him for protection. Those who oppose God are confronted by his judgment. As David recounts what God has done, he remembers the authority of God and the judgment of God over the world. The testimony he gives is that even when it seems as though evil is winning, God was sovereignly ruling over it all and was a refuge to his people and and an unbeatable force to those who opposed him. Sometimes we worry, don't we? Oh, something is new that has happened that is going to overwhelm the church. Oh, there's something new that is taking place that is going to overwhelm the testimony of the gospel. We worry and we fret that somehow something is happening presently that is going to undo, overwhelm all the testimony of the gospel. And friends, we need to turn around behind us and look how God has faithfully preserved his truth and faithfully defeated the enemies of righteousness time after time after time and after time so that when we look ahead at some troubling waters around us, we can remember uh, and, and have hope that God has and will preserve the testimony of the church and understand that God is currently judging his enemies and currently a refuge for those who are in need. It often seems as though the enemy, as those the enemy of righteousness are winning. Every generation has worried that the testimony of the gospel might be lost to the power of the world in their day. But in every moment when it seemed that the enemies of righteousness had won, God proved that he had preserved his saints and judged his enemies. Oh, dear friends, give thanks for what God has done. Has he not provided well for you and me? Has he not not abundantly provided well for the church? Has he not demonstrated over and over and over again, though though the waters roar and foam, though the mountains shake, he is not moved and his enemies have no victory. Be thankful for what God has done. And when you give thanks for what God has done, that begins to draw your heart to faith and allows you to be thankful for what God will do. So in the second half of the psalm, verses 13 to the end, David turns his attention to what God will do. And there's there's other things that can be said out of the second half, but just a couple I want to draw your attention to. First is that God will provide for the saints in need. Look in verse 13. In verse 13, David turns his attention to what God will do. And he says, Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me, O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughters of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The distinction between what God has done and will do is often hard to make because one gives testimony to the other. We have hope for what God, uh, what God will do because we have hope for what God will do because we recognize what God has done. We declare with conviction what God will do because we take courage in what God has done. So one gives testimony to the other. David's request for grace from God in verse 13 is not a request in isolation. 
He makes his request in assurance of God's response because of what God has already done. So in other words, he's, he's asking for God to provide, knowing that God will provide based on what God has already done for him. When needs arise in my own life, I don't know if you're this way, but I often respond as though I'm the first person that has ever experienced that need in the whole wide world. Do you do that? When a need arises in my own life and I go to prayer before God and I'm expressing that need, I often begin with this posture of, God, you've never experienced this before and you've never heard of this need before and it's a big emergency because I'm experiencing it. And what are you going to do now, God? And there's a fretting in that. There's a worrying in that. There's a, there's a, there's a consternation in that that's not healthy and it's devoid of faith in the provision of God. I pray with desperation. I give my mind to worthless worry and fretting in those moments. But eventually, as I give attention in prayer to the need, I begin to recall how God has met similar needs in the past. Even in recent days. You would think, and you know, this is one of those things in my life, you would think eventually I'd clue in, and then I repeat it over and over again. Even in recent, I mean, recent days. I was praying about a need that I, I frankly cannot see how it will be how it will be met. And so in my prayer life, I'm telling the Lord all the reasons why this need can't be met. And that's not a way to pray, by the way. It's a terrible way to pray. But I'm telling the Lord I, I have this need and I, I'm aware of it, and I'm telling the Lord all the reasons why it can't be met. But as I was praying... This is just the grace of God in my life. As I was praying, God began to remind me of a, of a time not too long ago when I had the exact same need. It wasn't all that new to begin with. And God began to remind me that even before I knew I needed it, God was pre pre preparing for that need and providing for that need. And had provided abundantly, graciously, and perfectly for that need. And by the time I ended my time of prayer, I was, I was no longer praying about the present need I was having. I was giving thanks for how God had in the past met my need because in giving thanks for what God had done in the past, I had confidence that he would meet my need in the future. You see how that works? God will provide for our needs. How do we know that? Because God has provided for our needs. Give thanks for what he will do. It's interesting here in the context of this psalm and talking about what God will do, not only will he meet the, the, your needs and provide for the needs of the saints, but David says that in the context of a hostile environment, God will also make his name great. He'll make his name known amongst the nations. Look at verse 16 where he says, the Lord has made himself known. He has exalted judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hand. God is working in this world to demonstrate his glory that his name might be known among the nations. In the Old Testament, God made his name known amongst the nations through his people, Israel. Today, God makes his name known through the testimony of the church. Last week, I preached from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I, hopeful, I hope it was a word of encouragement to you and in that sermon, I made the point 
from the passage that God is the one who preserves and sustains the church. We're called to be faithful, but ultimately the, the source of sustaining power for the testimony of the gospel and the church until Jesus returns is not found in our ingenuity or intellect or anything like that. It's found only in the power the faithfulness of God. We see that same principle in this passage as well. God will make his name known amongst the nations. And, and David says it this way. He'll make his name known through the nations through his preservation of his people or his preservation of the church, through his judgments and through his mighty hand. Now, all of these things are not the acts of God's people. These things are the acts of God amongst the wickedness of the world. Seems like we're living in a day where the nations have forgotten God. Is that what he says in verse 17? The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forgot God. Does it not feel to you that we're living in a day where the nations have forgotten God? Now, I, listen, you can't make an argument that I believe that Every nation that's great today was made great because everybody in that nation loved Jesus, and that's because they were great. But you can make a convincing argument that the principles of Scripture and the blessing of God on nations that, that, that bent their laws and, and the people bent their knee to the, the righteousness of God, that had a societal blessing upon those nations. And those nations, including our own, that have grown wealthy and great in part because of, the, of a biblical worldview that we employed, are abandoning those things, rejecting those things, and forgetting those things. This passage reminds us that the nations may attempt to forget God, but his mighty hand, but, but by his mighty hand, he will make himself known. Oh, friends, you and I are faithful, must be faithful to preach the gospel. You and I must be faithful to live out the gospel. But it is God who makes his name known amongst the nations. Be thankful for what he will do. Be thankful for what he will do. Now, there's one other thing in this passage that absolutely blesses my heart. It comes right at the end of the psalm, Psalm verses 19 and 20. Now, I want to read it to you again because I think it draws us to the point of be thankful for who God is. Look at what Psalm 19, excuse me, verse 19 and 20 says. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are what? But men. Now, two things here. I think what David is asking is that God would reveal to this world that he is ruler over all things and almighty God. Verse 19, I think he's, he's demonstrating or asking God to reveal that he is ruler over of, of all. These last two verses of the psalm are, are certainly part of the second part of the psalm where it's talking about what God will do and they are focused on what God do, but, but I, I think I want to give special attention to these closing words because David prays specifically that God would do two things, not let man prevail and cause men to fear him. In Paul's letter to the Romans and in his letter to the Philippians, 
He declared that God would accomplish this. Listen to these two verses. They are the testimony of what God will do that David is praying for in these last two verses. And in Romans chapter 14, it says, For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee, what? Shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. What does that mean? That means that man will not prevail and that man will fear God. Every man will fear God. To the Philippians, Paul wrote, Therefore God has highly exalted him, speaking of Jesus, him, and it bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now both of those verses are not saying that all the world will be saved. But there is coming a day when the entirety of the world will bow a knee and confess with their tongue that Jesus, in fact, is Lord. What does that mean? That the nations, the man will not prevail, and that the nations will come to the knowledge of the fear of God. I believe this is an important word of encouragement for believers today. In a world where it is celebrated to openly reject the goodness of God's creation, creation order, in creating us male and female, we need to remember that God's truth will prevail. In a world where laws that protect the biblical understanding of family are rejected, and instead laws are written that celebrate and even encourage fornication, adultery, and every other form of sexual sin, we need to be remember, remember that God's truth, God's will, God's kingdom will prevail. In a world where those who live according to the law of God are ridiculed and even punished, oh, dear friends, We need to remember that God is the ruler of all and his will and his truth will prevail. It does not matter what the news says today. The truth of it is, it has, it is, and it will forever be that God is the almighty ruler. God will judge the nations. Man will not prevail. Give thanks. Give thanks, dear friends, that God is the ruler of all. And secondly, give thanks that he is almighty God. So in verse 20, this is the verse that really blesses my heart. Above all, put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know. This is a, listen, it's, this is an important word to know. Let the nations know that they are but men. I confess that that last phrase is my most favorite of the entire psalm. Now, at first read, you might think this is a a ridiculous or at least an unneeded sentence. Of course we know we are but men, but, but do we? David understood that at the heart of every sin is the wicked desire of man to make himself God. Friends, it doesn't matter if it's the sin of gossip or the sin of fornication. At the heart of every single sin is the desire of man to make himself the ruler, to make himself the God 
of all things. In Genesis 11, there's a, there's a testimony given that you may be familiar with. It's the testimony where men decided to unite in their opposition before God. And in their uniting in opposition, they thought they could make themselves their name great. And in their unity of opposition, they thought they could be greater than God. This is where they build the tower. You remember that? They're going to build a tower, make their name great. And by, by, by gathering together, all agreeing, we're going to be together in opposition before God. He can't mess with us. There's power in numbers, they thought. We call it the Tower of Babel. Do you know why? Because as they built the tower in their opposition and their, their assurance that in their numbers they were greater than God, God struck them with multiple language, made them babble before one another and confused them and spread them out. Modern readers may read Genesis 11 and think that the people of this chapter were foolish to think that a tower would give them any defense against God. And yet, friends, in our own day, we're still building coalitions in opposition to the power of God. Oh, it may not be towers of brick and mortar anymore. Now it's social media. Now it's cancel culture. Now it's convincing the academics and the academy. And, and, and the heart of man today is still the same as it was in Genesis 11. If we can convince everybody and gather everybody together that, that right is wrong and wrong is right, then it must be so. Today, the entertainment industry is united, lockstep, united in defending, protecting, and advancing the LGBTQ plus agenda. Does their unity make it right? Today, the academy is united in, in, in advancing secular humanism. Does the number of PhDs who agree make it right? Today, the political establishment is united in its efforts to remove any connection to God's law and righteousness. Does the coalition of politics make it right? In all these things, men are attempting to supplant the authority of God with their own rule and their own authority. And David prays a powerful prayer. Put them in fear, O God. Let the nations know they are but men. Now, how do we come to know that beautiful truth? How do we come to know that we should be in fear of God and be, and that we are but men? The way we come to know that is to be confronted by who God is. No one stands in the presence of God in the arrogance of their heart. All who are in the presence of God bow their knee and confess with their mouth that He, in fact, is Lord. Oh, dear friends, to this and every generation to come, God will put the nations to fear and remind them that they are but men. Give thanks that God is still on his throne, still confronting men in our sin, still causing the towers to fall and men's tongues to be babbled, that we might know that he is God, and most importantly, we are not. I believe 
that worship, praise, thanksgiving, and humility are all related. I also believe that idolatry, selfishness, arrogance, and pride are equally related. It's no, no coincidence that as our culture has grown more secular, it has also grown more entitled and less thankful. This coming week, our nation will celebrate the Thanksgiving holiday. I'm looking forward to it, by the way. It's my favorite. I, just, I love gathering with family. I love the eating. I re- Listen, my favorite time of the day is not the lunch meal. It's the supper meal. Now, I don't know how your family does it, but what our family does, we leave all the food out, and then when it comes supper time, you get you a paper plate, and you go for just the fun things that you really like. And you load up on that, and then we all line up in front of the microwave and heat our plates up. That's the best meal of the day. I love that. And I hope your Thursday and your holiday celebration of Thanksgiving is a good time. But friends, we need to be careful here. Many will see Thanksgiving as simply a moment to have a large meal, watch football, or gather with family. And from a secular point of view, that may be all it is. Yet for Christians, we must do more than this. Our thanksgiving is not tied to a calendar date or a secular holiday. Our thanksgiving must be tied to our faith in God. We must be thankful for what God has done throughout history and particularly intimately in our own lives. Can you tell the story of the goodness of God in your life? Oh, dear friends, be thankful for that. And as you tell the story of the goodness of God in your own life, tell the story with faithful conviction of what you believe God still will do. Not based on what you hope and just randomness, but based in the testimony of God's Word that He will fulfill every promise, that He will bring about perfectly His kingdom, that Jesus will come again and rule this earth, that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that He is Lord. And all be, be thankful for who God is. I'm thankful that men are not God. <laughs> I'm thankful for the fear of God. I'm thankful for when God reveals that truth to this world and brings us to the knowledge that we are but men. There is salvation in that truth. There is freedom in that truth. There is grace in that truth. Let your thanksgiving not be something tied to a holiday, to a calendar, to event. Let your thanksgiving be tied to your faith. Let it flow out of who you are in Christ. Let it be a continual part of your worship. Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, 
and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening. And until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the kingdom.